Hey, welcome to Basecraft. So, I actually did my first gig in front of people in a year and a half this weekend. It was uh, in Tullamore, in Jolie's. It was called Rising 21. So, I did my band, Crowback Chicken. We did it the early slot. I wasn't sure how I'd feel about it, but it, what it actually felt like was almost like when you were 17 and you did your first gig and the buzz you got off of being on stage and having people watching you. So, uh, yeah, it was amazing and I can't wait to do it again. Now, I will say I found it a bit strange the whole being around loads of people and just all that because I'm so used to just being me in the shade and doing my own thing for the last year and a half but I'm sure that will become normal fairly quickly so a few more shows in the book and the phone is starting to ring again because there's a lot of these kind of um, uh, little gigs coming up a lot of them are funded government fund arts council funded and that kind of thing so yeah really looking forward to doing more of that so today's guest is Katie Taru. Kate is a, an LA-based bass player. She's a bass educator. She releases her own albums. She's an amazing singer, amazing double bass player. And uh, she puts up really cool stuff on her Instagram channel. She, her album in 2018 got voted as the best album by Downbeat Magazine. The album is called Offbeat. So really enjoyed listening to her stuff on um, Spotify in the run-up to this uh, chatting to her. And uh, yeah, she's just a really engaging personality. She has her own podcast called The Hump. I didn't know what The Hump was. It's an American terminology to do it. Um, I'll let you just chill explain it in the podcast. There's no point in me doubling up on it here. So we covered her base journey, what she's doing in the education side of things and how things are starting to ramp up again. She's getting busy. And uh, we even got around to her, Was it? I think she was in Ireland for about 12 hours at Guinness Jazz Fest. And she told us how that experience went. So, as usual, like, subscribe, all that stuff. Leave a review wherever you're watching this or a comment because that bumps it up. And, um, yeah, I'll see you soon and take care of yourself. So, how are you? What's going on in your world, Katie? Everything's good. I, um, you know, things are kind of opening back up and everything's moving along quickly. So, just kind of trying to keep up with the pace of life after kind of being like a moving at a turtle's speed the last you know year and a half yeah you're a pretty busy touring musician you were used to be on the road like about 30 weeks of a year before all this yeah and it was great it was fantastic I'm glad I got to do it when I did and um you know if it comes back again that's great if not again it was I'm glad I got to do it when I did. <laughs> I think everyone just feels like that. Loads of people I've been talking to are like, eh, I'm not sure about going back on the road as hard as I used to before. Like, I kind of like being at home and with my family and having time for stuff. Yeah, like to be a person. Yeah, to be a person. But you're actually, I took out the double bass out of the case for the first time in about five years. Apart from if someone comes to my house and they want to look at it. <laughs> but you're the first double bass player I've had on the show. So really happy to have you on. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's a... It looks really good. Everyone should have a double bass just for that purpose. <laughs> it's not really very good. It's a cheap one. And it, it's our, it's our the neck got snapped off there. I think about two years ago, I, I pulled my jumper up. Uh, and the stand was on the jumper. And, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I put it back together. My mo- I think I might give it back to my mother. She used to love having it in the living room. She, she was kind of annoyed when I took it. She's like, it's a lovely ornament. It looks great. Yeah. And, yeah, if I don't practice, I'll give it back to my mom for the sit room. It looks good there. Yeah, that'd be, like I said, everyone should have one. It just looks nice. Just mess around on it. But uh, yeah. you started really young. Like uh, I was reading in your bio, at the age of eight, you started playing double bass straight away, was it? Yeah, I started playing uh, violin when I was four. And there were these little like 
Christmas tree ornaments that you could actually play. And I'm the youngest of four. So we all started violin at four. And um, when I was eight, I mean, I was terrible. Like I wasn't one of those like genius kids. And I, and I didn't, it's hard to like something when you're not good at it. It mm. wasn't fun for me. So when I was eight, my mom said, you could choose a different instrument. And she plays bass. And she said, why don't you try the bass? Because everyone needs a bass player. So you'll always have a job. And, um, but of course, as an eight year old, I'm not like, that's not, that's not my reason for <laughs> worried to do about this. your job prospects. Just no, no, yet. no. Yeah. No, I'm not worried about my place in the world just yet. And, but it was one of those magical moments that I'm sure a lot of people have with instruments or sports or other things. I got the bass. I had a really great teacher, my first lesson, and it just, it just clicked. It just like, it felt perfect in my hands. It was, I mean, of course it was a, a quarter size bass, but yeah, it was just like love at first touch and sight it was amazing almost like a cello nearly a quarter size double bass I yeah, never saw was, one before oh yeah they're tiny and you know and they sound not weird but they're so small so the frequency is it doesn't rumble as lowly as low as a bass so yeah. but the timbre is there anyway the fretless sound yeah. and the usual yeah. and was it classical music you would have been jumping straight into at that young or was were they teaching you jazz straight away it was classical from the get-go, which was an easy, you know, transition from playing violin. And I studied, um, like, the classic, there's a great um, method, the George Vance method and, and Samandel. But I just had, I had so much fun with it. And it wasn't until I was about 12 years old that I, I, I sing as well. And so I was kind of like singing, getting into, like, listening to jazz a little bit. And when I was 12, I was walking around the school the after school program that I went to. And it was like the teacher literally came out of the classroom because he saw me wheeling my bass. He's like, we need a bass player in our jazz combo. And I was like, that's cool. I don't, I don't do that. And uh, he's like, no, it's cool. He's like, um, we just, we just play by ear. And I said, I don't do that either. I read music. And he's <laughs> like, no, musician, wait. don't make me play by ear. Come on. Yeah. And so, um, but I, I went, I went in and it was all people my own age and all, you know, just figuring it out, learning your instrument. And we were learning everything off the records by ear. And it was, um, I wouldn't have wanted to start any other way, nor nor would I have known. But it was just, um, it was such a seamless way to, to start. And you have no idea what you're doing, which is perfect. That's literally throwing in at the deep end. You're lear- you have to learn walking lines by ear at yes. like 12 years old. <laughs> Yeah, and you don't know if you're doing it right or wrong, and and I knew, okay, you know, just walk on every every beat, and okay, I learned what a root was and kind kind of what chords were, but yeah, you just learn learn by doing. That's mad. And then you got it. You got the singing. Was that something that was always there? Do you sing the whole time, or did you get into a bit more then around that age? Yeah, I got into it. I mean, I think like most people, like you just sing when you're a little kid, like in choirs. And I was doing a lot of classical singing, which again, I, I didn't like, but it was just something that I was, I had to do. And, um, and then I would listen to the radio. We had a really good radio jazz station here at one point, and it was Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie, like real bebop and, and Ella Fitzgerald. Um, and so I got into singing jazz. I loved the songs. Um, and my teacher, I, I, cajoled my way into studying with this really fantastic jazz singer Tierney Sutton and she said uh, we were working on jazz harmony and instead of playing the, the notes on the piano to kind of figure it out she's like well play it on the you play bass figure it out on the bass and then further along I would 
play the bass note and then sing the harmony on top of it. So it just came as a way of how to practice. And then I just started accompanying myself that way. Well, you did a lot of ear training very young. Like, was is that something that you'd incorporate into your own lessons? Like, for my own teaching, ear training might come a little, well, a few months in, but I wouldn't be straight in with it. Would, would you think it's better to just hit them with the ear training straight away, like getting them to transcribe things? I think so. And like in my experience, theory made zero sense to me. Like, it was all, um, you could tell me to play a major triad or diminished or whatever, and I wouldn't know, but if you, if you just played it, I could play it back to you. And then you could tell me, oh, this is, that was a diminished arpeggio or something. And then I would kind of reverse engineer it. Uh, but I, I do think it's so helpful to, to play by ear that way. And also as, as a musician, when you're trying to figure it out, you start to really learn the sounds that you like instead of someone telling you play this or this chord. It's like, yeah, you can, but go explore and find out why you like a sharp 11 on a mm. dominant seven chord and you don't know it's the sharp 11 yet and then you can go oh i like this note what is it why how else can i use it so i, li- I like to kind of go about it that way but everybody's different so some people really prefer okay i'm gonna go read this book and then apply this which is cool too yeah well i, de- I definitely think writing without a bass is better one of my students she'd only been playing the bass for about three months and she wrote her first bass line and she put in a ninth in it and i said oh that's nice you put the ninth in and she's i don't know but i like the sound of it like yeah that was a cool way to do it like yeah definitely and uh i was just i was listening to your record earlier i was really enjoying it especially the song it's the willow something and it was like just ba- you singing and your bass together mm-hmm. that that's like such a good combo just the human voice and double bass they just work so well together yeah the acoustic bass yeah that yeah that was a willow weep for me and um i always i love one of my favorite bass players of all time is ray brown and uh i mean he he was playing professionally from the 40s you know the early 40s up mm-hmm. until he died in 2002 and he he always kept up with the times uh, and he started with bebop with like dizzy gillespie and hank johns and everything and uh towards the end he would always add something funky to his sets and to him funky meant something different you know mm. than other people so i i kind of wanted to pay a little respect to his kind of funky bass lines and then uh ella Fitzgerald used to sing that song and they were married for a brief period of time but so that was kind of like the reason why i wanted to do that oh it's really cool but i i I suppose I was listening and I'm thinking jazz singing, would you put that in its own kind of sub genre of singing or is it just because even the production on your voice, it's almost like you're, it's treated like uh, a brass instrument or something like you're, mm. compared to other music you'd listen to. I was listening, thinking your vocal, is, it sounds like it was recorded the way you might record like an instrument as opposed to a voice is an instrument, obviously, but you know yeah. what I mean? Is that a thing in for recording? Is that the sound you would go for when you're singing that kind of music? Well, yeah, I definitely, um, I, I don't want to, um, bash myself, but I feel like I, I just, I want to, my favorite sounds are, are instruments. And instead of sounding like a vocalist's, um, like the way they would sound like their timbre, I'd, I'd go for maybe more of their phrasing. So I love, and I can't help it. It's just the way my voice sounds. I feel like some, I feel like a trumpet you know, like that kind of sound, the way my voice can do that. And when I record uh, 
li- when I perform, you know, I'm singing and playing at the same time and when I record as well. So I'm lucky to have a really great engineer who can mic the bass. Some people freak out and I'm just kind of like, well, put a mic down here, put one up here uh, and then don't <laughs> don't do anything funny to it. So, yeah, I definitely do feel like a like an instrument for my voice. And I yeah. And I love uh, I mean, I listened and transcribed a lot of Miles Davis and Chet Baker. And then I love tenor saxophone, too. So like Dexter Gordon and Sonny Rollins. And yeah. Yeah. So yes, you're you're on the right track. Good. No, my first introduction to that kind of singing was actually the uh, Mingus, you know, the Joni Mitchell album Mingus. Mm-hmm. And um, I was listening to Goodbye Pork by Hat, and like it was like mind blowing. You're listening, and she's singing, you know, the melody to the song the mm-hmm. way it is. But then she does the next verse of the song, and it's the solo from the original version, and that's the melody that she's singing. Kind of, she's fall, and it's just like, whoa, that's amazing. You wouldn't hear that outside of jazz. And that's a, that was such a cool way to cover a song to do that to pick the notes from the original version solo. Yeah, exactly. And it, it's funny, like maybe not a lot of people would even know where that came from, but it's it's still great nonetheless. And I've seen you you transcribe in your car. I saw you you were driving along and you're like, is that is that something you do a lot like throughout your career that you developed? Uh, well, obviously you're double tasking, you're driving mm-hmm. and you're transcribing, but it's a pretty cool thing to do. Well, so I live in Los Angeles, so there's a lot of traffic. It's like you don't have to go far to be in a lot of traffic. Um, so and I, I have a, a problem with just sitting and doing nothing. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I... I might watch TV. I'm fine relaxing, but in the car for some reason, it's whatever. So yeah, I, um, I'll i just put on music and kind of intentionally want to transcribe something. And um, it's kind of a fun challenge because you know anywhere in LA is going to take at least an hour. So okay, I've got an hour to transcribe That's crazy. <laughs> this one chorus. And, uh, and it's kind of like, oh, I got it all in, you know, right at the very end. So yeah, it's just something to pass the time. When you're in traffic, the you can really hear everything because the car is stopped. And um, yeah, I, I it's it's fun for me. I'd love to get an electric car. I'd say the sound is unbelievable in them because the the engine. I I have a van. It's really lousy, loud, and all the seals yeah. are broken on it. The rain even comes in when it rains, <laughs> so the sound is terrible when I listen to music. But I'd say the, it sounds brilliant in an electric car because you don't have any engine noise. You could just listen away. Yeah, my husband actually just got a Tesla, and I was like. I was thinking about that. I was like, oh my gosh. Cause I was, I just put on um, some Beethoven and I was like, wow, you can hear this so well. And I was like, yeah, I should, I'd like to transcribe in here. Is he got the Tesla that can do the dance? Like if you press it on your phone in a car park, it can dance around. Well, it moves around like in a pattern, like it's dancing. Oh, I don't know about that yet. They see like, they give you the Tesla and they don't tell you anything about it. So he's every day, like figuring something new out about it. All right, there's not many of them. I don't think I've ever seen one in Ireland. I was in um, London <laughs> gigging and the re- the most expensive one, you saw loads of them, but like that's London. Yeah. But in Ireland, they'd be fairly rare now to see a Tesla. Yeah. We have the charging points. They're like 10 years ahead. <laughs> there's loads of Tesla charging points. Yeah. There's no cars yet. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. But did it take you long to decide to do your debut album? Because, you know, you'd been playing bass a long time. And when was it? Was it 20, 2015? You did your yeah. first album. Was that a long time thinking about it or was it just eventually you just said, you know what, I'm going to release an album? That's it. Yeah, that's a great question. I, everything's different. Every time is different. Everybody's different. And I I didn't feel any pressure to 
Uh, when that came out, I was 27. But when I recorded it, I was 25. It, it took a long time for it to become something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I never felt any pressure, like, um, for some reason on, I guess it's every, like, artist genre. It's like, oh, you have to be young and do this. I don't, I don't, I'm not going to swear. I don't care oh, you about. You can swear, like, there's always swear. <laughs> okay, matter. I don't give a fuck about what my age is. I don't care about that. Who's young? Who's the top? Whatever. Mm. I just want to, you know, share my music. So I didn't have, like, a pressure to be like, okay, I have to do this by this age. Um, I really wanted to get my own playing chops together playing with other people like as a side person because that's kind of a lost opportunity um because people just don't have their own bands they go on the road and they just pick up other people so i was really fortunate enough to just work my ass off in la get get my get my shit together and then i got to play with this really great piano player um larry fuller in his trio for a couple years go on the road and just hone my craft and just try to be the best I could be and um and then it kind of I found the right people things were starting to kind of come together and someone uh I was talking to somebody about this the other day too and they made a great point it's like your first record is all the stuff you've been working on up until that point in your life and it's really true that's so true that's why a band's first album is always like oh my god how is this their first album? You're like, they've been gigging for like 10 years with these songs. That's how first albums are always awesome. Yeah. And and it's, it's, you're totally right. And I, I think there's 11 songs on that. Three of them are original and one more was pretty new to me. So that leaves seven. So I think the other seven tunes I had probably sung or known since I was 12 or 13. So there were, and it was just the fun part, putting the arrangements together. And then it took a year and a half for me to figure out, okay, what am I going to do with this? Because I wanted, I just didn't want to put it out there and then have it fall on deaf ears. So figured out how to do that. And then it was funny. Um, it was like all this people, people were like, you know, where have you been? And it was like, I've just been trying to, to get good, you know, <laughs> I'm here yeah. now. I've been in the shade and here I am out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So- but it was really well received. Like that must have been serious affirmation for. And but like I said, you don't really. You were saying you don't give a shit. You were just doing it for yourself. But at the end of the day, it must be really nice when it started getting awards and like in the top five of jazz albums that year. Yeah, it it was nice because I put a lot of effort into it and I I did it all um all myself. Like it wasn't on a label, so I you know had the publicist, had the radio, and all that learned a lot about the business which was fantastic so yeah it felt good and look here maybe it's different now like with social media but you have to have something a product you know for proof right you know to start Mm. touring or or do anything or do another record so yeah it was it was a really great experience and I'm glad that I did it myself and no one told was telling you what to do so it definitely opened doors for you you became more Katie the you know they knew you by your name as opposed to the side person that was playing the bass in the band so it it opened a lot of doors for you did it yeah that's totally true and it was um I I just have a business sensibility so I was able to just start booking gigs booking tours and I do all my own booking and whatever you want to call managing um so I I do all that so it it was nice I could really just speak for myself and stand on my own two feet 
Yeah, I do the man the booking and stuff for my band, but I find it hard sometimes to sell yourself. You know, you're well. It's well, maybe that's an Irish thing. You're like self-deprecating. <laughs> you're like, oh, yeah. It's hard to say we're brilliant because I know we're really good. Yeah. I know we're one, we're one of the best blues rock bands in Europe, but it's hard to se- sell yourself. And then when uh, bookers lowball you, sometimes you wish you had someone else. Well, we have an agent now in England, and he's brilliant. Uh, I, I'm not. Do you find that hard, like when someone tries to lowball you or to sell yourself, or are you have you got that down that as being like managing yourself the same as if you had this hard nosed, kick ass manager that wasn't yourself? Yeah, I've learned. Uh, so the person who produced both my records is uh, a drummer, Jeff Hamilton, who played with my hero Ray Brown, and uh, he he has many great gems, but you got to be willing to walk away. So when I'm talking to somebody and they lowball and I'll just, I'll counter and this is what we need. And if they say no, I say, okay, then we're not coming. And then, you know, it's, I remember one time it wasn't even that big of a, didn't seem that big of a fee to me for what we were doing. And they said, this is the most we've ever paid anybody for this concert series. And I said, okay. And then afterwards they said, this was the best concert we've ever had. I said, yeah. So you paid for it. <laughs> or you just said, you should be paying everyone at least this because musicians are worth it. Yeah. And it's funny when I talk to, you have to know your self-worth. And I talk to my friends and I don't really, I, I don't, I won't really say like, well, I got paid this or that, but they'll say something and I, I'll be like, no, you, you can, you're worth more than that. So mm. go ask for it. And if they meet you halfway or a little bit, you know, somewhere else, then next time you ask for this, because you sell out every concert, uh, which is good for them, you know, and you're promoting them. So yeah, you're worth it. Yeah. And I think you need to learn the business side of things. A lot of people get hung up on being the artist and they think it's like a dirty thing to get into the business side of things, but you just have to like, or bookers just take advantage. Like they'll, obviously when you're starting out, you'll do gigs for bad money, but when you start filling venues, you need to get your cut of the door. Like it's essential. Yeah. Yeah. And I've had people help, help me, you know, tell me that I'll go, they'll say, you know, you can ask for this. Really? Why? Well, because for that reason. So then yeah, you just have your, you learn your self-worth and it's, it's a difference between, between um, like your ego, you know, however you feel about yourself and your artistic ego. And uh, I always want to take care of my band too. So I want to make sure they're, they're taken care of and, and it's worth, worth their time. Yeah, well, I learned from the Blues Brothers never ask for free beer because they're like, this money is terrible. Well, you got all the free beer in the green room. It's like, oh, great. So, yeah, if they're going to throw out some free beers, I'll drink them. But they're not on the rider. The rider is like the pay and some food and some water. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I was reading about this program you do, the Women in Jazz. In how do you is it Monterey? It's it's in California, is it? Yeah, Monterey. Monterey, sorry. Oh, Monterey Jazz Club, Jazz Festival. When I read it, I just got it completely wrong. But um, (laughs) you think it's important to kind of um, push forward women in jazz? You think that they're not as prominent as they should be in the genre? Well, you know, when this is the third year they're doing it, and the Monterey Jazz Festival is, I think, like technically the longest running jazz festival in the U.S. And it's really great. And I do a lot of <clears throat> education stuff for them. And when they started this program three years ago and they asked me to do it, I didn't say no at first, but I, it's not my thing um, to, 
I've never had that a bad experience. I'll just put it that way. Mm. So I didn't really understand. And I, I just, I don't really care about anything. I just do what I do, be a good person. And um, you know, if you're good, you're good. So when they asked me to do it, I was like, I don't really want to do this. I, I think it's kind of ridiculous. But then my my friend who asked me to do it was like, well, you know, someone else, he was like, you're, you're going to be a good role model. I said, okay, I'll, I'll do that. So then, but talking to them and, and when, when we first met, they were all high school women. Um, and they were telling me like their experiences, completely different from how, how I came up. And uh, I was like, oh, this is terrible. Like you, you guys kind of do go through some shit and you guys take shit. So um, yeah, I, I think it is important. And again, women have always been there playing playing jazz so i think it is important for that reason to just like you know uncover it like yeah there's there's women playing jazz at a high level and also the other part of it is just kind of like helping and and guiding them and um letting them know like because they sometimes they need i mean they're in high school so they need to know like this happened and i'm like yeah that's not okay and you know you can go about it this this way or that way but kind of giving them some confidence and, and reassurance but they are incredible musicians and they're freakishly smart i ha- so i'm the third one starting this summer but the first two it was like they would get together and like they had their own they didn't even have they did barely talked like they would just kind of like okay we'll do this and that i would make like a few slight suggestions they all had perfect pitch and so like right before um like a gig i'd be like hey let's let's try this and they'd be like, it would, like they were like computers. They'd be like, okay, yeah, that'll work. And then it was amazing. So it was fun to work with, with them for that that reason. Like they were just like insanely talented, really smart, good good people. And so I was I was happy to, um, you know, just kind of be able to be there and witness that. And all instruments, like all the instruments in jazz, not just double bass. It was brass as well. Everything. Yeah. So like a jazz a jazz ensemble. So. Um, you know, piano bass drums guitar if there's guitar and we've had a really fantastic jazz violinist and then trumpet and saxophone and yeah it's been really amazing yeah no it'd be brilliant to see them coming through like because off the top of my head i can't think of too many prominent women in jazz i can definitely think of some bass players like es- esmeralda spaulding and uh, tal wilkenfield does a bit of jazz she's doing singer songwriter thing now yeah. but there's been a few bass players all right but they're definitely it's time for some of them to be at the festivals now more more yeah. women like yeah yeah and i think that also comes back to like what's your business sensibility you know and being able to stand up for yourself and ask for what you need so and i've had you know great without knowing it i've had great role models in my life that i've just you know kind of soaked in you know just being around these people so you just uh, yeah i think it also comes down to confidence yeah, I think you, you you had a special um path that you were like, like you said, you just did your own thing and you had a direction you were going, but maybe other people get in their own way, as people might say, they get in their own way. They're like, oh, maybe I won't take that path because I just see all these men in these mm-hmm. jazz bands being really successful and uh, that's not my place because you're, you're not seeing people in that place. Yeah, and I also learned, that's a perfect point, because I also learned that your own there's only one bass player, right? You know, in most, most bands. So there wasn't like a competition of another bass player. So like rhythm section instruments, there's no, um, you like 
coming up as a kid, there's no like form of like bullying or something. So, but if you play saxophone in a big band or trumpet and trombone, you're not the only one. So I, I, I learned what it, it's a different path for those instruments for mm. the most part. And a lot of it probably comes back to what we're like as kids, like the, the boys can be a lot more sometimes louder. And in so in those high school bands, the guy playing, the young fellow playing the sax might be kind of more boisterous and getting yeah. in front of everyone. Exactly. And when did you decide that you wanted to pursue being an educator? Like you got um, a scholarship for Berkeley, which is amazing. And and you went to Berkeley. Was that your, your, that's your formal education was all in Berkeley on double base? Yeah, I, I mean, I studied, you know, growing up in Los Angeles, really lucky to, you know, get to be around a lot of great musicians, a lot of great music. And then it was just a great opportunity to go to Berkeley. And I finished there in three years. I studied mostly with um, John Lockwood, who I really, really enjoy. And as soon as I graduated in August, they kind of right before that, they have sister schools all over the world and they have one in Ecuador and they said, we need uh, they asked like the music ed department for recommendations for bass teachers and they needed a jazz voice teacher. So they recommended me and it was just kind of like, I didn't really think about it too much. I was like, well, first I was like, well, I mean, I'm not like that qualified. I just mm. graduated college, but it's the same exact Berkeley curriculum. So I said, yeah, let's do it. And then like two weeks later I was in Ecuador and uh, just kind of thrown in to the fire and had 30 students a week, a mix of bass and voice and some ensembles. And it was, I loved every minute of it. It was a great learning experience. It was a great learning experience on how to pace yourself teaching because I would get in the habit of playing during every single lesson. And then I was just fried. I was completely like, I was like on the verge of getting tendonitis. It was like, so I learned how to, how to, um, to teach during those lessons. So that's kind of how it all started. And then when I came, I did that for a year. And then I knew I wanted to get my master's degree because uh, I didn't want it to be a plan B. And I was like kind of still in the school mode. And I, I knew that, in, at least in, in America, uh, in the United States, it's, you, you kind of have to have a master's degree if you want to teach at any sort of higher level. Mm. So I did that. And... And I didn't really start teaching until 2016 at a at a community college because people would ask for lessons. And I was like, I don't want to teach. Like, you don't want to study with me. Go study with John Clayton. Like, go <laughs> Everyone study with says like, that. Oh, I'm not a teacher. I don't know how to teach at the start. Yeah. I'm, yeah. And I was just like, even at that point, even though I had finished school, I had been teaching. My real like practice began when all of that was done. And I was practicing hours upon hours every single day because I didn't have I didn't have any other commitments other than playing bass my rent was so cheap so i knew <clears throat> i mean i would take every single gig that came my way so i wasn't i mean I, w I wasn't worried about making tons and tons of money my expenses were low so i was just practicing and taking gigs so that's when my real study actually began in my opinion um and then a really it was uh quite sad a great loved bass player in um la roger shu passed away from cancer and they needed a teacher right away at this community college. And because I have my master's degree, um, I just, you know, started a couple weeks and that sparked again, my love for teaching, especially because at community college, um, I don't know if they have that in Ireland. Uh, it's like, you can only, it's not, 
you go there after high school and you can take one class, two classes. Like, yeah. it's kind of like, kinda what have them do. like little small colleges that they're yeah. not like the university. They're like in between level five, they'd call it like it's between level eight is a bachelor's degree. And then level five and six and seven are like in between. Yeah. And that's, that's what it is. So you could, I loved it because I had kids who were just trying to figure out what they wanted to do in life in general. And they might've been out of high school for, you know, one to five years or something. And, um, you know, there were a lot of electric bass players and I don't play electric bass, but it was really fun to learn how to teach electric bass players and, you know, what the give and take is between both instruments. So that kind of sparked my love for teaching again. And during the pandemic, um, I was like, again, people had asked me now, now that I had been touring and like traveling a lot, like people, they might ask for a lesson, like if I'm in Denmark or something or London, like, you know, can I have a lesson? And sometimes you have time, sometimes you don't. So I was like, well, let me just put it out there. I'll teach online lessons. And I never wanted to do that either. Mm. And then I got, um, you know, I had like anywhere between like 30 and 40 students and, uh, it was fantastic and I still some of them have still been studying with me for like you know over a year so it's been it's been incredible you can get a lot done in those online lessons more than the officer's advantage I don't think beginners do well with the online thing they need the physical lesson where you can show them where to put their hands but the online thing you get a lot like the, the half an hour or an hour lasts for ages when you're online because they don't have to drive to you and there's none of this hey how are you I'm packing yeah. all your gear it's just straight in and you're learning yeah and I, I really love to teach. And um, so, and I feel like I don't miss anything with online lessons other than like, if I'm talking about the left hand, I just want to make sure they're like digging in enough, but I, I love it. I always, I'm, I don't expect anyone to remember everything. So I, they can record lessons, of course, but I always take notes after our lessons and, and email them notes and like, let's, you know, let's stay in touch and make this successful. So yeah, I, I absolutely love it. Yeah, I, I w- I've been teaching like private lessons in person for years, like, but then and in the pandemic, obviously I went online, but I decided to get some lessons myself from a jazz musician who lives in Dubai, Anthony Mutaraja. And when I saw the way he was doing it, I was like, I'm doing online lessons completely wrong. He's just like there in his pajamas and he's chatting mm-hmm. to me. And sometimes the lessons could go half an hour over what we were supposed to do. And I'm like, I was thinking, what? He's just so chilled out. I said, but I guess if you're at home, you can give a bit more. Like, and if it goes 10 minutes over, or you can text the next person and say, yeah, you know, wait 10 minutes. That That's kind of cool how relaxed it is. Yeah. I like, I like it for that reason too. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, and I knew how, uh, how to space it out, but like, you know, sometimes it just works out in a way where it's like you have six right in a row and, uh, I'll never do this, but I had to do it once. I was just like, and it was, it was, I knew this student really well. I was like, I am so hungry. I, I have to eat something during this lesson. Um, but yeah, for, and I don't, out of all of that time, I only messed up one, like, I only messed up one schedule. So I was happy about that. But I think now since, um, like the universities, like that semester's over now I'm getting a lot of those students who want to study in the summer, which is, which is great too. I'm, I'm really happy to do it. 
Yeah, I was really bad for that at the start of the, the I used to be up a mountain or something and every week the same because I only had this one person on a Wednesday or something at six o'clock and he'd be like, all right, are you there? And I'm like, God, no, I'm up a mountain. I'm sorry, I forgot again. <laughs> I kept forgetting. But So I really had to start setting reminders because at least when you're going to a physical place, you're not going to forget about that. You have to be there yeah. for a few hours. But um, did it take you long to get your um your own pedagogy together? Like what your own kind of way of teaching or did you take a lot of influence from your own tutors over the years? Yeah, a, a mix of both. I think that I loved practicing so much when I was growing up that I figured out a lot of things without having to label them, you know, just technique with the left and right hand until I was teaching a lot and kind of looking at people and going, oh, that's exactly, I, I know how to address that. So a mix of like my own intense practice growing up and, um, I mean, one of my favorite people and best teachers is the bassist. He does everything, but John Clayton. And so just having lessons with him, being around him, really, he really teaches you to be your own teacher and just to kind of like ask yourself some more questions, take things slowly. So yeah, a mix of those teachers. And then my favorite thing is when someone asks me a question or, or I see them, and this happened yesterday too in a lesson, and I'll just be like, something's not right because everybody's different. I'm not going to lay on. I love first lessons, too, because everybody's different. I'm not going to lay on. This is it. this is what I do for my first lesson. But um, I'm like, something's not right here. I don't know what it is. Play it again. Uh, so, you know, something with your right hand is, is weird. It's making the sound weird. Let's figure it out. Uh, and that's one of my favorite things because I'm learning so much about how, how to teach and yeah, I I love that. That's my favorite. It's like you're a detective, and then, and then it's up to them to fix it and be aware of it. Yeah, like uh, you definitely evolve as a teacher. Like when I started, it was real. Get him in, get him out. Oh, here's a student. This is what I'm teaching you. Good luck. But now it's <laughs> I'm getting more philosophical. I'm like, what's the meaning of practice? And here's why we play. And these are like the ten year old kids. And you're like, here's why we play music because we're, you you'll keep getting better at it. And then I compare it to sports or video games and I don't know maybe that's yeah. just what you do as you get more used to doing it like you start and I my old teachers used to that and I used low I still remember like some of the stuff big long things they told me about the, what the meaning of music and practice is like yeah and there, there's only one like two I'm not like a big like I don't have a million warm-ups and those types of exercises but I'm like heavy on practice your scales and your arpeggios with these chromatic approaches and then and I'll tell you why because uh, it's going to help your 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 technique, of course, your baselines and everything you encounter there ha is all the answers for everything you're you're going to encounter the music that you're playing. That when you have an issue, and and also like the chromaticism is going to help your baselines and your soloing. So I'll say that, and I was like, you may you're not going to realize that now, but I love it. Like I was teaching, I actually had an in person class yesterday, and I was going over this, and they were like, this one kid was like, oh yeah, that's really going to help my baselines because it's it's adding chromaticism. I was like, yeah, you know, you're totally right. Yeah. And I love finding analogies because I have this one student we've been working together for two years and he's very, he overthinks everything and he's a mainly a guitarist, but he just has such a problem with walking bass lines and being confident about it because he's worried too much. And I was like, well, do you watch baseball? I, I love baseball. He's like, yeah. 
I know that's not an Irish thing. I've never, I, I don't, I've never been to a baseball match. I've never watched one apart from seeing it in The Simpsons or something like that. Or yeah, it's just totally. Movie. Yeah, it's it's not. It's only in the U.S. They're very long. I heard. But my friend was at one. He said. There's a lot of drinking and you're there all yes. day. And because you're drinking, you don't care that it goes on all day. That's exactly. How and it. you can yell obscenities. It's great. It's so much fun. But I was just trying to tell him, I was like, because he was worried about like which notes to play. And like, I was like, well, you have to go. You have to try everything, you know, and there's a pitcher and a catcher. And I'm like, they have all sorts of certain combinations. So I like when you finally reach somebody and it kind of clicks. But you got to yeah, you have to find that inroad. Yeah, you definitely do. Yeah, it's it is very rewarding, and I so I think most anyone who's like you know really into their music should try and teach like any musician. But I think a lot of people are dabbling in it now that never did, and that's a really good thing because there's there's loads of students out there. Music, it's get, kids teaching music is one of the best. Kids learning music is one of the best things they can do like for their development. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, you were I was I actually have a book from Rufus Reed, so I was looking at your um podcast. The Hump with Katie. Uh, mm-hmm. How do I pronounce your surname? Thoreau, is it? Uh, yeah, it doesn't matter. Thoreau, Thoreau, I don't care. Thoreau. I was thinking it was kind of like Louis Thoreau. You know, the guy who does the documentaries, yeah. but spelled He's different. He's cool. Yeah, <laughs> He's it's, it's like same same like in the US. They just say Thoreau. But uh, you, you had Rufus Reed on your book. I actually have his double bass book. It's really good. And uh, when did you kick off your podcast? Is And is it mainly with kind of double bass pe- players and people from the jazz world that you chat to? Yeah, I I started it in September of 2020. And I wanted to do it before the pandemic. Since I travel, I I thought like, oh, I'd bring, you know, a microphone, maybe a camera. And if I'm in Berlin, let me let me interview the bassist from that symphony. Or if I'm in France or whatever, Ireland, you know, hook up with you. So I kind of thought it'd be like a fun thing to do when you have a day off on the road or like an afternoon and a great way to just the, the bass community is so much fun. And so obviously that wasn't going to happen last year. So I thought, okay, let's do this at home. And um, the hump, we we just refer to that as the beat, you know, here. It's just like, oh, that person's got a good hump. I never, I actually never heard that phrase, actually. That's new. Okay. Yeah. So it could be, uh, you know, someone might think it's provocative, but it's not. And then the bass kind of has humps. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So yeah, I started it and it was a great way to just, Everybody has a different path, a different story. And um, it's been really fun. And it's mostly bass players. And it's not, I guess, no, it's not all jazz. It's been jazz and classical. I got to get some electric bass players on there. But, um, and then every once in a while, I'll have a non-bassist, like someone from the music industry. I've had um, the president of Quincy Jones Productions. I've had the past president of Fox Music and... I think it was last week I had uh, this really great saxophone player, Walter Smith III. So I kind of, I sprinkle in non-bass players because mm. eventually, I mean, the hump to me too is also, you know, just means something that feels good. So everyone's got a hump. So it's like, I would love to have like, you know, a chef or something. Yeah, branch or, out into other, just yeah. whatever, talk about anything. Yeah, exactly. And I like talking to people, obviously. So yeah, it's fun. It's fun for me. That's really cool. Those episodes can be scary, like because you're like, oh, if I chatted to one or two people outside of the bass world, I'm like, do I am I able to talk for an hour about something that's not bass? I'm so used yeah. to talking about bass. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I listen a lot to um, the the astrophysicists podcast, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah, yeah. And, There's another one, and- um, Infinite Monkey Cage, with that uh, British, uh, what's his name? I can't remember his name. British astrophysicist. But I haven't heard that one yet. 
Yeah. And it, but it's funny, like these people are so brilliant and they'll have on an expert because they're like, I don't know. I don't know about this. And it's mm. like, come on, you know, you're so smart. <laughs> and any other podcasts that kind of inspired you to, to do your own, like that you really like the style of. Um, I think that was like the only podcast I listened to. I like, I listened to like science podcasts, but since mine, I have it as a podcast and a video, people can, can watch it if they want. It was just more of, I like talking to people. So I just kind of based it off, off of that. And I like, you know, it's fun to do the research and then kind of like, you know, it's like the more you start talking, like they'll go, they'll make a left turn and like tell this awesome story. And you're like, what? This is so cool. Yeah, I try not to watch any interviews with who I'm talking to because yeah. I'm like, if I'm hearing this secondhand, I probably won't say something random that will send us in another direction. So I'm like, in this little, not, don't listen to any bass players talking zone mm-hmm. for the last year. Exactly. And um, I was going to say, uh, oh yeah, that was, so one of your main quotes was um, uh, Quincy Jones once said that this girl is it. <laughs> How did that come about or what's the, the context of that quote? It's pretty amazing. Like Quincy Jones is an absolute legend. Yeah, he is. And he, he's one of those people that it's like he has, he's so he's a genius. I mean, he's been around 40s and 50s and he's 87 or 88 now. Um, So I'm this piano player I play with. Uh, he's on my last, rec- the one with Willow Wheat for me. His name's Justin Coughlin. He's beautiful piano player and he just happens to be blind and his friends made a documentary about him with his relationship with this great jazz trumpeter Clark Terry long story short Clark Terry was Quincy Jones's first uh teacher and so they kind of met that way during the documentary if you haven't seen this film it's called keep on keeping on it's incredible and it it's one of those things too like when you talk about first projects first records it was their first documentary and you're like how is this possible Mm. And they weren't even documentary. Okay, so anyways, go check that out. But so Justin, from when he met Quincy Jones, Quincy Jones called him like a couple weeks later, I guess, because he had played for him. And he was just like, I can't stop thinking about your sound and invited him to go on a world tour. So then, and then I met Justin a couple years later at at a jazz festival and we played together and we hit it off really well as friends and playing together. And he just kind of asked me to do a bunch of gigs with him. And then Quincy Jones would just show up (laughs) and he'd sit like right in the front row and he's Quincy. So he could, you know, kind of do whatever he wants. And a long story, even shorter, my, my hero, Ray Brown was Quincy Jones's first manager. And so I'm like, Ray Brown's a genius. He knows about business and kind of taught Quincy about that. So then I would ask Quincy, you know, what was Ray Brown like? Uh, and he would like tell a bunch of stories, but he would just be sitting in the front row and I'd be playing and he'd be like, he'd just start shouting, Ray Brown, Ray Brown. So that's how I met him. And um, he's really nice and genuine and he'll come out to concerts. And he opened a club in Dubai at the Palazzo Versace called Hughes Bar and Lounge. And they were hiring his musicians and people talent he knew for like long stints. So I got to do three months there. And it was incredible to play five nights a week, like, you know, five nights a week, three like real shows a night. Yeah. It was it was like going into an intense weightlifting. Yeah, your chops would be on fire. Your solos would be like amazing every night. Yeah, it was really cool because I had to it was, you know, three months. So I, I, I couldn't have one piano player the whole time schedule wise. But my friend, this piano player, Justin, joined us at the halfway mark. 
And the first note we played, I think we were playing a blues, the drummer and I, and he just like was like, whoa, because uh, we were just like, we were digging in. It yeah, was, it was, it was great. Yeah. Yeah. We were, we were cooking for sure. And then that was cool because I went on, um, that's when my, my second record came out offbeat. And then like right from Dubai, I went, flew, went to New York and did like another month or two month tour and then went, went to Europe after that. So it was just kind of like this intense, it, the intensity never stopped. Yeah, you have like touring brain, like I call it, like some, when when I'm on tour, we'll eat like, try to eat healthy. So we eat like wraps and stuff like that, you know, with with vegetables in it, trying to make something in the hotel room that's some way healthy. And sometimes you're like a soldier, I have to come back. Do you know, some, you hear about people come back from World War Two and they sleep under the bed or something. Yeah, yeah. Or, or they dig a hole in the garden. So mm-hmm. the equivalent for me is like, I'm home and I find myself eating a wrap or yeah. E- eating cold porridge or something i'm like <laughs> I, I i need to go back on tour or stay away from it i'm not sure but i yeah i messed up yeah i totally feel you on that yeah and i travel with um i travel with my my espresso machine so and the band loves me for for that if how big else. is that or is it one of the the ones you put in a hot plate or one of the you know the george clooney ones that you plug in it's the george put... clooney one okay. so i have one for the u.s and i have one for europe for the plug and i also bring i then i do bring a hot water heater even though like every hotel room in europe is going to have a hot water heater you never know and no, um, kettle we like tea in europe so you're always going to get a kettle you should anyway. that's true yeah exactly but i, I bring mine just in case because it folds down um so if i have those two things i'm good i'm good to go but the food is so much better on tour in europe i will 100 percent. i haven't found that but maybe in the rock venues they just assume we just want to eat pizza and that yeah. is not true i don't want to eat pizza <laughs> for two weeks but yeah. they, they wouldn't be impressed with your espresso machine if you go to have you been to italy yet <laughs> they've got very strong opinions when it comes to coffee oh and yeah food. yeah yeah no i i don't think i brought it on that trip actually yeah. <laughs> the folding kettle though, that's a good hack. I didn't I never thought of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you made it to Ireland, the Cork Jazz Festival, didn't you? On some of your one of your tours. I did, and boy do I wish I was in Ireland of all of like ten or twelve hours. Oh really? And, and it was one of those tours I'm sure you had. It was you know, one straight month and uh that was the last date, I think. I think it was the last date. And it was one of those tours. I had food poisoning all along the way. Oh, God. But it was the nicest hotel to end in. And it was just beautiful. And I loved the people there. And it was kind of, actually, it was kind of crazy. But um, it was a fun, really fun experience. And I wish I could spend more than, you know, 10 or 12 hours. Uh, who? What year did you play? Do you remember any of the, the, the big headline acts that were on that year? Because I, 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 I attended it. Well, I play it every year in bars, like, but I would attend a bunch of the big gigs as well. Uh, I think Billy Cobham was there. Uh, oh yeah, I missed that. I missed all the gigs because we always. It's the kind of festival. If you're there for the whole weekend, you could get like ten gigs if you want. There's just gigs yeah. all weekend. So if you come back, you'll have to do one of those um, all weekend playing loads of shows, things, and do a few workshops if you can. Oh man, I would love to. Well, it was funny. The gig that we did was um, the instruments were the bass was okay, but the end pin didn't work so i was just like so it was basically on the floor the drum it was a complete drum rock kit it was like a 24 inch bass drum and keyboard which isn't ideal but it was (laughs) it was stuck a minor third below concert really 
That's crazy yeah. that they would give you such substandard equipment. It was pretty, yeah, I will say it was substandard. And the pianist, I'm fine on the road. Like I keep my cool and I make sure everyone's good, but he was on his last leg. He mm. needed to go home. And uh, he couldn't figure out how to make the key, how to change the keyboard. So I said, fuck it. And 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 I knew like in his he couldn't do this. I was like, I'll play everything down a minor third. And I started changed changed all my keys. That's crazy. Ch- changed the tunes. I was like, let's just okay, last gig. But the best part. Speaking of baseball, it was during uh, the World Series, and um, and I'm a big baseball fan. Mm-hmm. I love so, how they call it the World Series, but it's just I know the American. <laughs> it's just yes, it's just the United States of America, North American series, but. Uh, I remember flying back, I think it was like from Cork to Amsterdam or something. And this, I was so exhausted, but I was watching this baseball game and baseball games are only nine innings, but this one went to like 18. It was so boring, but I was just, I couldn't, I was so confused when I landed in Amsterdam. I was like, why is this game still going on? <laughs> it just, I've actually flight down starting from Cork before. It's not a super long flight, but it's a, that's a long baseball game that lasts for the whole thing. Yeah, I was really confused when I when I got off the flight. So you don't get to bring your own base because the, ba- the base is so expensive. When you leave North America or even California, you don't get to bring your own base. You have to just get one wherever you are. Like, yeah, and you know, especially in in Europe, I don't really mind it because it, most of the bases are really fantastic. They're really great, uh, and they have a lot of respect for the instruments over there. And it's also an opportunity for me to make sure that. I carry the sound in my hands and, you know, what I want to hear. But sometimes it'll offer something different. Like the sound will just be so different. So it'll inspire you to play something differently. Still sounding like yourself. But I, I, I've told this story before, but I was in Serbia and the bass that they had, I'm surprised they even had a bass there. The bass that they had was like made from maybe a piece of bass. It looked like, you know, a piece of like another like a violin or a cello and honestly like a piece of boat it was crazy the way this thing was like put together and it was so cool when i got on it it wasn't it, i was on a another person's gig but i was just like wow this is really cool cool sound and inspired me to play a little bit differently that's mad yeah you don't really have that with electric instruments they do have different sounds but for me electric instruments are in very broad brush strokes like that's a p bass they all sound the same that's a jazz they all sound i don't care if yours is 2000 or mine is a square they're pretty yeah. much the same but acoustic instruments are completely different in that regard yeah yeah you're right uh, and you never were tempted to get one of those electric ones that it's just a neck and you can put it in a bag and put it on your back and bring it with you no because i'm such an acoustic player like Sometimes I'll, I usually just play with a microphone in front of the bass, but if I can tell that the sound person, like that's not going to work, I'll, and if there's a, a pickup, I'll let them go direct. Uh, but yeah, for the most part, I'm I'm a very acoustic bass player. Yeah, the pickups don't sound great. On, well, I bought a good one, a K&M for that one behind me, and it just doesn't sound great, does it? Like the pickups and double basses, well, it's very hard to EQ. It's so boomy. I think yeah. the microphone kind of does a better job of picking up the, the actual timbre of the instrument. Yeah, and by the time you EQ uh, a pickup, it's like you 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 have a pickup, then you've got like a blender, a fa- like you, then you have like all these devices, you know, and all you want to do is make the sound of your bass louder. Yeah, I know. So yeah, just put a microphone in front of it and you're yeah. good to go. 
Yeah. Uh, and the, the the Maui Jazz Camp, that's in Hawaii. That's another cool thing you're doing. You you actually have a, you have a lot going on in the education <laughs> side of things, and you're 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 kind of saying you're only started really getting into that in the last few years, but it's obviously busy, very busy. There's a lot going on. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Uh, like I haven't traveled anywhere in the last whatever year and a half. And I'm leaving for that on Sunday. And of course, this week is like the busiest week, like just in general, it's a super busy week. But that came about because my um, my step grandma lives in Maui and I was visiting her and someone asked us to do a performance there at their at the Performing Arts Center. And someone from the tourism board was there and they were like, we've always wanted to have a jazz camp. Would you would you like to do this? I was like, yeah, of course. But if you know hawaiian and, and, Ma- and things on maui like things are pretty laid back so i was like this probably will never happen you know yeah. we'll and then um it kind of took a year to construct it and put it together and then it happened and uh so we had a really great first year because the idea is to bring on the tourism side they want you know kids from the mainland to come but it was fantastic and last year we did a long like six week virtual workshop this year is, is small because of COVID. It's it's even hard for us to travel to Hawaii. But next year, because I had it all laid out for 2020, we were going to do the youth camp and kind of layer this and then have an adult jazz camp because adults won't like to play and who doesn't want to go to Hawaii. And I, I know, that's unbelievable going to Hawaii. That's so cool. Yeah, and then we have a teacher. Um, we'll have a teacher track too for, for teachers because, I mean, here if you're a music teacher, you have to teach choir, concert band, jazz band. You have to like teach everything. So just kind of doing a couple of days for that. But yeah, that's so much fun. I Yeah, it's exciting. And is there, will you have, do you have another album in the works? I was thinking like, does making original albums, is that like another vocation to, to you? Like, is it something that drives you? Like, it's not as if you can say, oh, I've got three out now. I'm happy. I don't want any more. <laughs> or is it like, I'm, I'm working like, on like these kids. songs. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like kids. Well, original songs are kind of like kids. Yeah, <laughs> it's hard to let them go. But uh, do, do, does it drive you writing your own music and releasing your albums, not just in a monetary way, but as like a vocation way? Yeah, you know, last year or maybe the end of 2020, I just I had like this one live recording, and it doesn't the quality isn't good. But I was like, I'm just, I've I've always wanted to have a live record, so I just put it out. Um, and I thought it was a fun performance, but I have been working on, like, I'll post a lot of videos of stuff I'm just working on. And it's just me and I hear everything else going on. But yeah, I am working on another record that um, is going to maybe have like a little bit more groove to it. Um, so yeah, I am. I am. That's in the works. And I it, I don't think of it like, oh, I have to do this now. It's just it always happens for me. It's like, oh, it's the right time. I've got this amount of like music happening yeah let's let's do it yeah my own band we brought out a bootleg well we have two live albums that are like officially released but on one tour we got you know those zoom recorders they're they're really good they're after getting so good so we recorded every night because you can't that's the thing about a live recording if you're doing like the professional cd one the night that you do it you have to be on fire or the few nights you pay for you have to be on fire so we said let's release 100 copy bootleg like a hand printed hand sign every copy and we just recorded every gig on tour with the zoom recorder mm. and we i made I, I did it up on my computer the best songs and the best takes from each from the whole tour and we just sold it as a bootleg and actually people really liked it and not one person said the quality was crap and it was a waste of money yeah well exactly and i i 
I went out saying, I was like, well, it's very live sounding and you'll feel, since no one could see live music at that point, I was like, you'll feel like you're at a live concert. I was like, just put it on while you're having dinner. Yeah, that's a good selling point. I love the talk and you can, you can kind of, it, it almost transports you back to that night. You'll hear someone who had a loud voice to yeah. chatting between songs and all this. Yeah, because we love, I, I love bootlegs and I have some really, really cool ones. Yeah, and you hear someone at the bar, like some lady, like just blabbing and you're like, I just want to hear the solo, but this is cool too. <laughs> no, they always talk during the bass solo. Isn't that the the joke? Yeah, exactly. But I know we kind of were talk- messing earlier about like electric basses all owning a double bass. But w- what do you think about like people getting a double bass? Is it the kind of in- I-, I think like because I have one, but I don't play it much because I kind of came to the conclusion like it's not the instrument you can just dabble in and go out and do a lot of gigs. It takes serious dedication and hours in the shed to be good enough to go out and do gigs with it or do you think you can everyone should have one and dabble on it and play a bit like i think if you learn the technique that works for you where you can uh have stamina because that's the one thing i mean i'm sure you can go out and do a gig but it's like it's a different set of muscles right to play an hour on upright than is electric if i played electric for an hour like my arms would be falling off so i think if you just learn the basic technique that works for you where you're you're not hurting yourself i mean i find i find some value in it and then why not you know someone needs upright on one you know one track of a recording and instead of them having to hire somebody else you go i can i can do it you know unless it's like something extremely difficult but no that's that's true like i um i I did the Samandel book. I got that and I did all the scales. So when I pick up a bass, a double bass, my hand straight away goes into the positions, you know. So I play in tune. But um, a friend of mine asked me to back him up on an acoustic singer-songwriter gig a few years ago. And I hate doing that in the electric bass because I always play for the song. So I'm like, not going to mm-hmm. be doing much here. Like, it's root notes, the odd, like, run. But I'll be bored, like, you know, because I play in a rock band. So I said, I'll I'll play double bass. It'll be brilliant. And it did make it more interesting, but my hand was killing me after the half mm, an hour. Yeah, exactly. As, even though I was just playing the simplest parts, my hand just mm-hmm. couldn't do it. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Well, thanks a lot for coming on. Uh, where where will we get uh, people to check you out? Uh, obviously, you've got your podcast, The Hump with Katie Taru. And uh, what social media sites do you mainly um, hang out on? I uh, You can find me on Instagram. But, you know, at Katie Thoreau, and I've got the hump with Katie Thoreau there, too. And, uh, yeah, and Facebook and YouTube, but Instagram's easy, and I'm I'm fairly uh, available and reachable, so you can, you know, chat or DM if you guys have questions about double bass. I'm always yeah, you're very down busy. for a chat. You're busy on Instagram. You put up really cool stuff, uh, all the the stuff in your car and the one-minute lessons, <laughs> and, like, you're, you're putting up lots of it, fun. Do you find that um, you enjoy the social media side of things as opposed to a lot of people just are like, oh, God, I wish I didn't have to do that stuff? I find it to be really fun because I just you get to connect with so many people. And this year alone, I felt so much more connected to the bass community for the first time in my life. We, we have this International Society of Bassists. And I was just like I felt really connected with the community. And it's nice to be able to help or, you know, I put this stuff out you know and i i'm glad you know when someone goes wow this is i this really helped me uh if it was like a lesson or whatever something about the music so i i just enjoy sharing and i find it fun it's not a lot of pressure i'm not like oh i have to record this and put it online it's like i i'm working on something i'll just you know put it out there 
do you do that with your your phone you know those videos i'd be watching is that just your phone microphone oh, yeah. it's just it's just my my iphone because the, the phone actually the double bass sounds brilliant on those but electric bass goes terrible into a phone it's just something about the frequencies like it sounds really nice like the double bass through the phone <laughs> phone microphone yeah yeah i just use my iphone i don't know what it is though. like i can't put up i would never put up a video using my phone for the electric bass because you just hear loads of fret noise and stuff yeah. but obviously <laughs> double bass doesn't have fret so that's not going to be a problem yeah brilliant okay sure uh check it out lads and um i'll talk to you soon <laughs>